No, because I don't. I don't think I started writing it until right around the time things started opening up again. Um, it was just. It's something that I've always wanted to try to do, and I actually don't think the pandemic. That free time, I actually didn't do a whole lot with my. That's not true. I did a lot of cooking and uh, drinking during lockdown, and uh, I didn't really start writing the book until twenty twenty one, like right around the time that we started playing shows again in the fall of that year. Right around the time Delta started, all these shows got booked. All these shows got booked in May of twenty twenty one. And then we went out in like August, September and right when Delta hit. And so, um, you know, it was one of those things where like if you sold 100 tickets, maybe 60 people would show up, you know. And they wouldn't ask for a refund or anything either. They just wouldn't feel comfortable going. I wonder how much of that is a product of sort of having to be in that creative mindset. The the fact that the writing of the book and the touring coincided with one another. I, I don't think so because I don't think touring is a very creative process. It's a, it's more of a, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's just a completely different, um, cause you're really doing the same thing over and over and over again. You know, you're, you're being creative as far as like where you want to go eat and what you want to, what you want to maybe do with your time off. But for the most part, you're playing the same songs every night and you're, I guess if you were a jam band, it would be a more creative process or a jazz player. Let me restate it. Creative wasn't the right word, but I just mean in terms of sort of, I don't know, like how much you compartmentalize your your work life and your home life. Well, I would go even further. I have to compartmentalize my work life at home differently than my work life on tour because my work life on tour, I'm completely separate from being at home but there's also less free time to do creative things because you have to, you know, do your tour stuff, play shows and whatnot. How did you manage to fit it in? Uh, I just wrote a thousand words a day, um, just consistently. Uh, kind of made it kind of in the same way of like getting up every morning and going for going to the gym or doing whatever it is that you do every day for your own mental health, I uh, would go and and write. And uh, then it got to the point where it was like actually really fun to do. So then it wasn't even like once I, I you know, initially when I started doing it, it was like, okay, I got to start. Starting's the hardest part, whether you're making a record or apparently a book, I've learned. Did you find that it had a, a marked impact on your mental health? I... Yeah, I mean, it it it, it, it sort of like uh, you know scratched the creative itch that the same sort of feeling that songwriting does for me in kind of a new kind of a new way, like discovering a, a new I don't know what a good metaphor for that would be. Like you know, if you like really like cooking and you discover a new recipe that you enjoy making or something like that, you know, like. It was it was the same sort of muscle memory, but just with a different outlet. It sounds like something that you had been thinking about for some time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I uh, kind of in the same way of like doing a podcast where it was just sort of like I have a lot of stories because it's sort of a, a weird 
sort of unique uh, life uh, and job. And I found that like in relaying those stories to people who don't tour that they, you know, think that they're, they're interesting. So I just thought I should write these down. Uh, and in the, you know, when I was doing podcasts, it was like, oh, I should just tell these stories. Is it the sort of thing that feels like unique and remarkable as you're going through it? Or do you do you need that kind of outside reminder that not everybody lives this kind of life? Oh, I'm, I'm pretty aware that uh, it's a pretty uncommon job. You know, even in trying to relate it to people, uh, as far as like, this is what I do for a living. And these are the struggles that I have with it. These are the good things I that are, you know, the positives about it. But it's not all roses. Um, people still don't think I have a job. Even It's one of those things where like somebody said one time that like, if you're going to be in a creative field, you're going to work really, really hard for something that everyone else is going to think that you did because you're lazy. I saw somewhere you describing it as being a, a mid-level touring band. And, and it's that position where, you know, random people that you ca- encounter on the street might not know the bands. And unless you're like Taylor Swift, I, I think people have difficulty imagining that anybody could possibly do this for a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think people realize that like, you know, club level touring is something that, you know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, the music industry equivalent of like factory work, you know, like it's, it's a lot of work and it's a, it's a good, it's a good job, but it's, it is a lot of work and it doesn't, you know, I get a little annoyed when people casually throw around terms like rock star and stuff like that, which I think is really annoying because it's just like, no, I, I work hard and play in clubs, you know, like I don't, I don't fly in a private jet to every show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and even the people who do work really hard at what they do. I mean, look at, you know, the clips of Taylor Swift in Brazil during that heat wave where she's like beat red on stage and almost passed out. I mean, that's, that's real work, you know? <laughs> Not to be too much of a doubter, but somebody died at one mm-hmm, of the shows mm-hmm. because of a lack of water. It happens. Yeah. Were you, so you've been a journaler or journaler. Is that the right word? You've kept a journal for a long time. Uh, Off and on. Yeah. When did that start for you? Probably when I was a teenager, you know, you're kind of like angry, angry poetry phase of, of being 16. And I, I kind of, I can't really journal on tour. There's just not a lot of privacy to do it. Um, so it, it tends to be something that I do at home. And so for a lot of years, I didn't do it because I was touring so much that, that, uh, you know, it's something that I, uh, I really, again, started doing it in the last, uh, in the last nine months or so, uh, when I quit drinking, I started journaling again every day. So it's part of my recovery. The times when the most interesting things are, are happening are the times where you don't have time to write about them. Yeah, but that was part of the thing, too, is like, you know, uh, wanting to write them down while there's still memories that I can, you know, call upon, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure at some point, I won't be able to articulate 
these things. And so I would like to have a document of them so that they're not forgotten. I mean, I found that the pandemic, partially the pandemic and partially like getting COVID a few times have had just like horrible impact on my my, my short and long-term memory. Mm. I don't know if you've experienced anything like that. Uh, no, uh, lately it's just been a lot of like some things during the, uh, last, uh, few, uh, I don't know how long, uh, the last, uh, bit of my drinking career is a little hazy before I, you know, so like things come up now where I'm just like, I don't remember that. And they're like, you don't remember that? And I'm like, no, I used to drink a lot. When we were discussing the things that you did during the pandemic, the two, one of them was very productive. I think, I think cooking is like very productive and, and good for your mental health and good for your family life and all these things. And then the other, the other thing was drinking. So you got, you, you just got to the point where it wasn't healthy anymore. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I basically drank myself into the hospital. So, uh, you know, my, uh, my privileges have been revoked. I'm not allowed to drink anymore. By my own, by my own, you know, authority. You revoked your own privileges. I revoked my own privileges. Was that a difficult process to give it up? I mean, I I, I stopped drinking before the pandemic about a year or two before, and there were times when I felt like it was great timing, and there were other times where I felt like it was it was terrible timing. Well, I mean, there's never a good time to do it. You know, there's never like a time in your life when you're just like, oh, I've got all this free time. If anything, the free time is the worst part of it. Uh, for me, it was just a matter of being able to sleep because I would always – I was scared of like trying to go to bed at night. But, um, you know, um, I got through that and now I sleep like a baby, even on a tour bus, which I didn't used to. I used to drink like a, a glass of whiskey sometimes before bed and I, I found it was never a really good sleep. No. It's very fitful. Yeah, I mean, unless you unless you're just completely passed out, and then you're not sleeping either. You're just not awake. When you make a lifestyle change like that, um, how do you end up filling those th- th- those holes in your free time? Well, routines very important. Um, you know, I'm in a recovery program. I go to meetings and stuff. I try to exercise every day. Uh, I journal. I cook a lot and you know, write a lot and, uh, garden when I can, when it's not fucking dreary out. But, um, you know, uh, I walk a lot, honestly, like we just got a new dog. And so I've been walking her like quite a bit. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of like, it's, it's just way, it's way more productive. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, I, even if I'm not doing anything, I just feel more, like present in what in the things that I am doing. I, I found over the last few years that I really reconnected with walking. You know, it's if, you know, if you are able, obviously not everybody's able to walk, but right. if you are able to walk, it's something that you tend to take for granted because mm-hmm. we do it to get from point A to point B, but really putting myself in a place where there was nothing, well, being put in a place where there's nothing else to do all day and kind of just aimlessly walking around, it's it's wonderful. That's what I kind of started doing during lockdown is I would go on these like two-hour, three-hour walks and just listen to books on tape or podcasts or something. And I just, I just really enjoyed it. And now it's kind of my thing to do 
on tour just to like go on a walkabout, just get up in the morning and just go on a walkabout and sort of, you know, spend two hours just sort of exploring the city that you're in. And then, you know, kind of makes you appreciate just coming back to the club and, and having a place to like lay down. During those times when you were really in, in, in the heat of touring, um, when you were pretty consistently touring, you didn't really take the time to discover the cities as much? It's yes and no. I mean, uh, you know, in van touring early on, you just don't have time because you're spending your whole day driving. Um, and so you end up getting to the club, like, you know, uh, I've been all over the world and I've seen airports, vehicles, highways, gas stations, and clubs and hotels and sometimes bars. And, you know, it's, it's only if you have like, like you can't really get to know however many times you go to a city, you can't really get to know it unless you have like time you know, to explore it. And so like we went to South America and it was like, I was in, you know, Argentina for 18 hours and eight of those were asleep, you know, and six of them were at a show. So it was like, there was no time, you know, to go explore the city. So it's like, I've been there, but I haven't really been there, you know? Um, so I tried to make an effort the first time that we toured in Europe, it was really instilled in us to like go wander, like no matter how tired we were. And then eventually you get to a point over there where I call it cathedral burnout, where you're just like, yes, this place is beautiful. I don't want to walk around anymore. There's also just that practical fact of if, if you're drinking, that often means that you like aren't up early in the morning and, and don't have that well, to explore. Yeah, there's a couple of times in Europe where we, we've been on these uh, kind of econo, it's kind of like a cross between a, a really large, like, sort of like a, an airplane, airport shuttle bus with bunks in it. And so you can't really sleep in it. So it would sort of be like you'd be up all night driving and then sleep all day because you just couldn't sleep at night. And that's just no way to live. And certainly no way to go see a city. One of my initial fears, or not fears, one of my initial concerns when I decided I was going to stop drinking was I, I live in I live in New York, and here, you know, so much of obviously this applies to a lot of places, but so much of the socialization happens around bars, and you know, happens with people drinking, and it's a great you know I'm a fairly introverted person, it's a great social social lubricant, and I was I was a little afraid that I would be losing like a significant aspect of socializing with other humans and you've got this job that requires you to to be in bars yeah uh so it's it's a big part of sort of the discussion um you know i mean in recovery it's sort of like the idea of going on tour is not um not the best uh job to have, you know, unless you're going to go play in churches or some shit, you know, like it's, you know, I have to work and I have to work around alcohol. And so it's, it's been less of a problem being 
around it in bars and more that I just need to have my own space away from it. So like the last tour we did, uh, we had the tour bus be a sober space. And then, you know, if the guys wanted to drink, they would just hang out in the dressing room. And if I felt comfortable being in there, I would. And if I didn't, I would go on the bus or go on a walk or something like that. And so it's a bit of a separation of church and state. But it seemed to work pretty well. Uh, I just have to sometimes go to bed before everybody comes home if they go out. A lot of the musicians that I talk to you that uh, have been through the program and tour um, fi- find it useful to find meetings in the area as well. Yeah, and I've, I've did that a lot as well, as well as like Zoom uh, Zoom meetings and stuff, which you can... The, a lot of the tour that we were just on was in like amphitheaters, so they were kind of like, you know, out in the out, outside of the city. So there weren't a lot of meetings that were like close by, and I didn't really want to pay a... uber ride to go sit in the church basement for an hour so zoom meetings were very very helpful alcohol had previously been a big part of my ability to 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 talk to people and engage people in conversation and i've I've spoken to a lot of musicians who used it or continue to use it um as a way of uh you know getting over anxieties or even like performing live was it was drinking a part of that process for you previously no i mean in the sense of like having stage fright or something like that no because i think i probably got my first ten thousand hours of touring before i ever drank at all i was a little nervous about it it had become such a big part of my life that when i the first time i played a, a show sober earlier this year i was a little anxious about that but it was fine you know, I have found that like when I would drink, it would exacerbate my anxiety and my depression more than it ha- more than being sober has. And because uh, I, I do suffer from both of those things, but like, I, you know, I found that like I feel more comfortable just being myself, and sometimes that means I just don't want to be around people who are drinking. And I think I didn't know that about myself because I was like drinking in order to be in a social situation that I didn't necessarily want to be in. It's like I was like trying to make a party I didn't want to be at more tolerable by drinking. And in fact, I was just kind of making myself worse, you know. And so now I just try to only spend time at the parties, to use that metaphor, that I want to be at, you know, and not engage in, in things that I'm, I'm not interested in doing. And, you know, I really like performing and I really like being with my friends, but, you know, we tend to hang out more before the show than after these days because they have a different stuff that they want to do. One of the most remarkable things about the band is like, it- how consistent the lineup has been basically since the beginning and you all seem to still like each other uh for the most part yeah (laughs) Yeah. i mean obviously any any relationship any like sibling like relationship we just lost our tour bus so i don't know maybe we'll we'll kill each other on this one 
I always say that like the best way to to test a, a new relationship is where a relationship is to move in with somebody, and like the best way to test whether or not you should be in a band with somebody is to just like jam yourself into a van with them for several hours at a time. I mean that'll that'll you know make the decision for you. You know it's it's you know I've been married for twenty three years, and it's being in a band this long is very similar in that it evolves. So like the really, you know, and like sometimes, you know, you're still pissed about something that happened 20 years ago and it doesn't really, whether you're in a marriage or you're in a, in a band, like you, you have to like work through that and find a way to like, you know, have the relationship that you have in the present and not just hold on to resentments from the past and learn how to be around each other and learn how to like enjoy being around each other as the people you are in your 40s as opposed to the people you were in your 20s do you find that it's gotten easier or harder to maintain those relationships the the band relationships specifically uh for me in the last nine months it's been easier because i've been better at communicating uh just because that's part of the part of the recovery process is to sort of like you know not bottle it up uh and so i just you know even today when it's just like all right if we're going to end up having to take a van on this we need to be very aware that there needs to be we need to discuss what the sober protocols are because i need to have you know a space that i you guys need to have a space to drink and i need to have a space to not be around people who are drinking and if those things can coexist, then we can, you know, go on tour. And if they can't, then we have a problem. So, and everybody's been receptive to that because they know this is what I need to not die. <laughs> this may, may be a bit of a reach, but the book um, opens on your discovery that, that you're diabetic. And obviously mm-hmm. that's a defining part of your life as it is anybody else's life and especially a life at a job that requires you to be on on the road all the time was that you know prior to this sort of like new life of not drinking was that i don't know was was that was that a differentiator for you do you feel like that kind of like made you that your touring experience was was different from others because of this aspect of your life uh, yes, but I didn't want anyone to like, mm, like I've gone on tour with people for weeks at a time who did not know I was diabetic and it wouldn't be unless I had an emergency situation that they would even, you know, it would even come up. Um, and I think that that comes from, and I don't think I realized it until I wrote it in the book that like I decided very early on that this was my thing and I was going to deal with it and I wasn't going to take any pity for it and I wasn't going to like do anything different, you know, than anybody else and I could do whatever I wanted to do. And so consequently, I think that everybody kind of forgets it sometimes. Uh, I'm more open about it now, uh, but, you know, it... it if I look back on it, it's sort of like, yeah, taking 150 syringes to Europe with me is weird. You know, (laughs) it's just sort of like, it's, you know, and then I didn't want to throw them away because I didn't want to like, they weren't like biohazard 
you know, containers in, in rock clubs. So I just came home after six weeks in Europe with a backpack full of used syringes and had to explain to customs and immigration that, yes, I had been to Eastern Europe and Amsterdam, but I... And yes, I'm in a rock band. And I'm in a rock band, but I'm not a junkie, you know? There is a funny moment in the book where you're... I, I can't remember what the venue is, but you're talking about shooting up backstage at the venue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was at uh, the Whiskey in L.A. I was just like, well, plenty of people have shot up back here, but for very different reasons. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's another parallel, too, in between sobriety and being diabetic and that and i'm saying this is somebody who like obviously we spent a lot of time during this conversation talking about it but these are things that you that you live with but you don't necessarily want to define you as a person right uh yeah i think that that's true you know it's but at the same time i think that what i maybe did as a self-defense mechanism that I'm trying to like not do now as I wasn't very open about it, uh, the diabetes and stuff. And I'm trying to be more open about that and about the sobriety and about, you know, mental health stuff. Because I think, uh, and I kind of like bought into it that there's this sort of like, you're sort of like, I think especially in this line of work, you're sort of like projecting an image and I think part of that image is to not, you're not allowed to complain about anything. You know what I mean? Like you're not allowed to, uh, to say like, oh, this is a difficult, you know, I mean, honestly, like sleeping on the floor of a van is kind of a rough way to live. And people are still like, oh, isn't that so cool? And it's just sort of like, well, you know, for the 90 minutes you're on stage and people are singing along, it's awesome. When you have to drive all night and drink coffee at five in the morning at a gas station that's been on a burner for 12 hours, then it's less, it's less, you know, glamorous. But there's a stigma about complaining about it. I fully understand that. You know, I know that. And I, I myself try to be mindful of the fact that, like, I do, I do think that I'm lucky that I get to do you know, that I get to travel around for work and that I get to, you know, meet all these interesting people. And I have a sense of guilt around complaining because I know that like most jobs in the world are harder than mine. Mm -hmm. The only people that ultimately you really can complain to are people who do the same thing as you. Or something similar, you know, uh, comedians, uh, Oftentimes, people in the restaurant industry, I find a, kin a kinship with. Um, it's sort of like, I think it's because it's mercenary work. It's just sort of like, you know, uh, you, you're you're serving people, whether you're performing or you're cooking or, or whatever. You're you're still kind of at the mercy of the of the patron, and uh, you know, it's it's sort of this. Uh, it allows for a certain type of. Uh, anti-establishment sort of personality like you can have neck tattoos and work in a kitchen and be in a band uh maybe you can't be an accountant maybe you can i don't know i don't want to put too fine a point on it but you know the there is some irony in playing 
the the E word as you keep calling it in the book and not and feeling like you can't like properly express your mental health issues or your feelings. Well, I don't think at the time. Yes. I think that like the younger generation of people in that, in that scene are more uh, adept at it. I think that like, I didn't have the tools to admit it to myself, let alone uh, be open with it publicly. Like I didn't even know it was a problem, which is how I ended up drinking too much because I wasn't dealing with it. Uh, I was self-medicating in order to deal with, with uh, that stuff. But I, I do think that there's a, it's a lot more for like my kids generation of musician. It's a lot more open to talk about, like it's a lot more um, accepted to talk about like mental health stuff. And I think even like, you know, our generation, I, I, I do think people are getting, are getting better at it. There, there's less of a stigma. Uh, there's yeah. Almost a stigma. There's a stigma to not being in therapy at this point. I've noticed. Well, depends who you ask. I live in Kansas. So how much of that, that process of self-discovery, how much of it was really just sort of like going back and reconnecting with the journals? Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of a nice thing to be able to like, like last year and that we're getting ready to do it again next year. Go, we went and did a, a tour of our, we played our first album, which was 25 years old. And, you know, when we made that record, I was 20 years old. And, you know, you can go back and listen to it and learn how to play it again. But you can't really adapt it at all to uh, your current self. And so it was kind of nice to be able to, like, take these stories and the perspective of someone who was a teenager, but to be able to, like, look at it with a certain amount of, like, adult kind of... Uh, perspective? Yeah, perspective. Yeah. I was going to say wisdom, and I felt stupid saying wisdom. But just that, like, you know, I, it, the book is supposed to be written from the perspective of who I was at that time, but it's it's a lot more articulate than it would have been if I had actually just published journals from when I was 20 years old. You know what I mean? I, I do, but I, I think it's a, I think it's effective in that, in the sense that I didn't realize it was, you know, ba ba effectively based on journals. Uh, I, I hadn't read that before I started to read the book and, and it is, I think it is written in, in a very immediate way. I would I would describe the book, you know, in some ways as being journal light because of that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I guess it's it's sort of like it's inspired by journals. It's not like word for word, like you know, it's not photocopies of of my my journals from high school. You know, it's it's, but it is a lot of like things that I was thinking about and writing about at the time. I, I was talking to somebody recently about the way people mostly unconsciously uh, evolve their stories over time. Like sometimes you'll like conflate people, combine people because it makes the story easier. You'll, you'll change certain details. And in your mind that like, that becomes the story. I'm, I'm curious, these stories, as you, as you said that you've, told you know um, people a million times whether 
going back and and reading something that was written as they were happening gave you like an entirely different perspective on the events. Not in not necessarily in writing it. I think in thinking back on some of those things, I have different perspectives than I did at the time, and I tried to be cognizant of that. Of just like, I'm trying to think of an example. Like the way that I feel about the first uh, our first record and the label we were on on our first record is honest the way it's written in the book. It's not necessarily how I feel. Like I'm not still super pissed at them. You know what I mean? Like I've, I've kind of, and so, but I didn't want to like write from that pers about that particular topic. I didn't want to write about it from like how I feel now. I wanted to try and remember how I felt then, but yeah, uh, less so in this book, but like, you know, I, I've done different things where, like, I did a, a podcast a couple of years ago, a year ago, that was a, a history of uh, Vagrant Records. And when we would talk about, you know, I would end up talking to different people in my band or other bands, like different band members, but asking them the same questions about the same story and getting different answers for the way this, including my own bandmates who remembered things differently than how I remembered them. Um, and so I kind of thought about that when this book was coming out and I have just decided that I'm entirely sure that I got some of this wrong, but if they want to correct me, they can put out their own fucking book. There was no, you get to read this before it's published privileges with the band. No. What about the wife? She hasn't read it. She doesn't want to read it. She's worried what's her concern uh well I, I like i said i was writing it when i was in the i wrote it when i was in the depths of my drinking and so it's not a happy time for her so there was a lot of like uh you know i'm going off to go work on my book it's like well i'm going off to go to the bar i'm gonna work on my book but i'm gonna go have some some beers too so she She's also, she's in the process of getting her PhD, so she doesn't really have time to read my stupid book. Was the drinking, the increase in the drinking and the writing of the book, is there a way in which the two are connected? Yeah, finishing the book uh, fucked me up because uh, I think when I finished the book, I started having these sort of like um, a bit of an identity crisis in regards to like, you know, I had written all this stuff about how driven and, and sure of myself. And then ultimately successful I was when I was younger. And then I was kind of having this thing of like, Oh, who am I now? What am I doing as an adult? And it wasn't like a midlife crisis. Like I didn't like go out and buy a convertible or anything, but it was sort of a, of a, I, I felt really unsure of myself. And I think I, I think that, increased the amount I was uh, self-medicating in order to sort of like attempt to deal with that as opposed to just actually dealing with it, which is what I've been doing the last nine months. You're in a relatively unique position in that, like how many of us in life have had the same job since we were teenagers? Well, and even more so, how many of us have had the same job that you were teenagers and everyone thinks that your best work was when you were 19? 
or not everyone, but like certain people will consistently say that like, you know, I only like the first two Get Up Kids records. And it's just like, well, then you're not really giving the rest of it a chance, you know? As a music fan, though, I I wonder um, if there's a level in which you can relate to that in that, like, obviously, you know, you were a teenager at the time, the listeners were teenagers at the time, and and people have a close connection to, to... Oh, don't get me wrong. I don't fault anybody for that. That's not there. I definitely relate to that. And I feel that way about other artists, but it's just sort of like when you're the creator, you know, when you're the insider looking out, it's, it doesn't make you feel terribly good about yourself. You start to kind of feel like, uh, you know, that high school football player who's just always talking about the big game from when they were younger and they don't, they don't have any appreciation for what they're doing now. And, you know, you have to find that balance as an individual of like, I'm happy doing what I'm doing now. And I also celebrate the things that I did when I was 22. But if all I did was sing, was pretend to be 22, I would be a miserable person. I think anybody would be, you know? There aren't a lot of blueprints for aging gracefully in this business. Not in rock and roll, no. I think if you're a country singer, you can you can get older. Although, I don't know, maybe not a modern country singer. I think maybe like Americana. You can be old and play folk music. There are a handful, like I had Nick Lowe on the show, and I feel like there are, there are a handful of people you can point to that really stuck the landing on that. But and, and maybe be grateful that you're I was having this conversation with somebody the other day. I guess be grateful that you're not in hip hop because like are there any examples in hip hop of people aging gracefully? Well, yeah. I mean LL, the Beastie Boys, uh anybody from that kind of generation, you know? I you know, I I think that like Yeah, I think there's examples of it. I just think that like Rock and roll, popular music is a young man's game or a young person's game, you know? And it's sort of like, you know, it's like a shiny new toy. You know what I mean? And it's just sort of like, you know, I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather be, you know, a workhorse of a, of a utility, you know, than, than be some like flashy new thing. I, I was having this conversation with somebody recently because of the Andre 3000 album mm-hmm. and i feel like he i feel like he found a life hack of just you know do something entirely different than the thing that defined you when you were younger yeah but i mean i can say from experience whenever you make a change like that you you do have to accept the fact that some people aren't going to get it and they're gonna you know and they're gonna make fun of you for it and that's it ultimately you have to make that decision as an as a creator as an artist to to do like if you're if you're making art for other people, ultimately you're you're not being true to yourself, and so you sometimes you have to make that decision of like what's more important to you, being true to yourself or being doing what other people want you to do, you know. And luckily, in his situation, he's got enough. He doesn't ever have to make music ever again, you know. If he doesn't want to, he's not like dependent on that to make a living. Uh, so he he can do stuff like that, and people are interested in it. And like from what I've heard of it, sounds cool. Like it's it is cool. 
it's it's not it's it it will serve a completely different purpose than bombs over Baghdad, but you know, maybe I'll listen to it when I'm meditating. You know what I mean? Like, which is something that's a big part of my life too. So, so far, what I've heard of it, I thought was I thought it was pretty dope, and like you know, I respect him for it. Yeah, I know. I was I was I was listening to it while reading yesterday. It's a good it's a good album to read to. When um, at what point did meditation become? A part of your process uh i started doing it a couple of the years ago mainly as a blood pressure hack because mm-hmm. my my blood pressure was kind of high and so that was one of the things that they were like you know it's sort of like you can get on more and more pills and but just kind of like you know lose some weight try meditating so it would be this thing of like all right so i'd have to like check my blood pressure at home so, and this is something I learned from uh, Penn Gillette's book when he lost a bunch of weight that you, like I would go exercise, then take a really hot shower, then meditate for 10 minutes and then take my blood pressure. So I was about as calm as I possibly could be. But then, uh, you know, in, in, and then it became sort of a thing to, to deal with being on tour when I would get stressed out. To, to just sort of like recenter myself. And then in recovery, it's become a big, it's a daily, it's become like a, at least once a day, like daily practice. It finally st- stuck with me during the pandemic after years of trying it. It is not, it is not an easy thing to do. Well, I, I don't think it's any harder than anything else. It's just like, it like takes a while to like start. And then eventually one day it just kind of clicks you know, and it just, and then it's like, oh, okay. So the point of this is just to be calm, you know, <laughs> it's just like, and that's it. And it's just kind of like, but what are you going to do when you're calm? And like, nothing, you're just going to be calm. It's simultaneously like hopeful and annoying when you realize that there's no right way to do something. I find it liberating actually, because, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a, concept you have to get your head around and i think it's something that like happens in recovery too of just like you never finish being a sober person you know what i mean you never you never finish yoga you never finish meditation you know you you just it's the process and there's something that's really like liberating about that and if you then apply that to your career as a creative person then it's just sort of like Okay, so this is, I don't, I'm never really done with this until I'm dead. And then apparently, even then, I'm not done with it, because, you know, as we learned from this new Beatles song, like, someone will just find all my, find my voice memos and and make, make, you know, music out of my grocery list or whatever. In terms of um, going back and playing that first album, I mean, how much of it do, do, do you still relate to at this point in your life? Some of it more than others. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of it's written from a perspective of, of someone who was uh, kind of scared of, of be- becoming an adult. And I still remember what that feels like. And I think I'm more annoyed about being an adult than I am scared of it at this point. Whenever it's just like, like right now, like at some point tonight, I need to start going over our, uh, you know, medical insurance stuff for next year, which 
doesn't sound fun or or taxes or anything like that. But it's just sort of like I, I definitely relate <clears throat> to that. The problem is, is that sometimes I think there's a song on that record called Michelle with one L that's sort of written about my wife who was then my girlfriend and it's it's kind of needy and codependent and I don't really enjoy playing it because it it's it I think its intention was to sound loving but it comes across as like really possessive I think and I don't I don't I'm not that person anymore and I don't want to be that person anymore so then having to like sit in that and play it and the song's like seven fucking minutes long so it just takes forever to play that uh you know it it's it, it that's my least favorite song uh to play on that record that's a big defining characteristic of the book is is sort of coming to grips with that codependence yeah yeah i don't know that's that's a part of it that like i haven't really thought about a whole lot since i wrote it but yeah it's something that's very much like a part of like you know, just recognizing that, like, I was a very controlling person, and I, I think it's my it's my default, and uh, you know, it's something that I try to uh, manage better and not be like that. Before, when you were discussing this process of, I guess you know, comparing the stuff that you did in the early days to, to what you're na- doing now, and and I guess the struggle that you had kind of toward the end of the book, the questions that you asked are, who am I now? What am I doing? Do you feel like you've got a better grasp on those questions? Yes, uh, and I don't think I really did when I finished the book, which is why it kind of fucked me up. But uh, you know, in the last, really in the last nine months. Uh, since I quit drinking, I've done a lot of like sort of self-exploring and just sort of like figuring out like who I am. And I actually feel a lot more like I keep finding all these parallels between like the person in the book up until the very end is very sure of themselves and like had a vision of what they wanted. And the problem is, is that I, I kind of, got what I wanted and then didn't know what I wanted after that. And now I feel a lot more akin to that person in that I know what I, I know what I want and who I want to be. And, you know, uh, I'm not trying to pretend to be something or force myself to be something that I'm not really that interested in. And, uh, so I, I feel a lot more comfortable in my own skin now. 